0: We are a nation, a people that are accustomed to violence. We, we see it regularly in our television and movies, so much so that we are no longer shocked by any of it. Hundreds of bullets, maybe even thousands, fly by as our hero in the story dodges every single one of them and ultimately wins in the end. Occasionally, he, might, he or she might have a flesh wound, but certainly nothing worse than that. Some of our action movies are more hand-to-hand combat, fighting and punching one another, and we seldom stop to wonder how any human being could take the punishment that we're watching on television and get up, and yet they do, and they walk away victorious at the end. The current generation of young people have grown up with violent video games gaining points for shooting various enemies. They think nothing of playing war or killing zombies. It's all just a game, even if it is gory and bloody. Of course, when this violence bleeds over into real life, we see another mass shooting or something of this nature, we begin to debate the prevalence of weapons in our society and our thirst for violence as a form of entertainment. And I'm not here to wade into that debate. It is an emotional and serious discussion that divides our country, as so many other things seem to do today. But in spite of the prevalence of violence in the news and in entertainment, most of us, gratefully, have never really seen violence in person. If we ever did, we would probably shake from shock, become squeamish or worse. We would probably close our eyes at the sight of it, turn our heads away from it, knowing that if those images are seen, they will get into our minds and potentially remain there forever. Knowing that we might never be able to erase them from our minds, we'd we'd rather not see them at all. Perhaps that's one reason why the details of Jesus' punishment and crucifixion are withheld from us especially by Mark, Mark gives us the shortest account of any of the Gospels, the smallest of details concerning these last events of Jesus' earthly life, the mocking and the scourging and the crucifixion which follows. But the truth of the matter is none of the Gospel writers give us the gory details of this punishment and death. They tend to ignore them, or at least not write them down for us, because that is not their focus. The physical pain of Jesus was not their priority. Their purpose was to share with us the purpose for that pain. That is not just to see the violence, though it is there, but to know why the violence and what that means for us. And so while we may not know every detail, we, need, we do need to see a picture of what Christ suffered on our behalf because he did so for sinners like us so that we might be forgiven of our sins and set free. And so I invite you to take your seat in the gallery, as it were, this morning to gaze upon the trial and punishment of Jesus. You are not there on trial. You are not there as a witness. You are there merely as an observer, but not a casual observer, not an indifferent observer. You are there as an observer knowing that the outcome of this trial and the punishment which follows has a dramatic impact upon your life and indeed on your eternity. Mark chapter 15, the first 20 verses is our text this morning as we see the king condemned mark 15 verse 1 and as soon as it was morning the chief priests held a consultation with the elders and the scribes and the whole council and they bound Jesus and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate and Pilate asked him are you the king of the Jews and he answered him you have said so And the chief priests accused him of many things, and Pilate again asked him, Have you no answer to make? See how many charges they bring against you? But Jesus made no further answer, so that Pilate was amazed. Now at the feast, he used to release for them one prisoner for whom they asked. And among the rebels in prison who had committed murder in the insurrection, there was a man called Barabbas. And the crowd came up and began to ask Pilate to do as he usually did for them. And he answered them, saying, Do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? For he perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priest had delivered him up. But the chief priest stirred up the crowd to have him release for them Barabbas instead. And Pilate again said to them, Then what shall I do with the man that you call the king of the Jews? And they cried out again, Crucify him. And Pilate said to them, "'Why? What evil has he done?' But they shouted all the more, "'Crucify him!' So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. The soldiers led him away inside the palace, that is, the governor's headquarters, and they called together the whole battalion, And they clothed him in a purple cloak, and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on him. And they began to salute him, Hail, King of the Jews! And they were striking his head with a reed, and spitting on him, and kneeling down in homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak, and put his own clothes on him, and led him out to crucify him. The sun is now beginning to rise on Friday morning of Passion Week. Jesus has been up all night. There has been no sleep for him on this evening. Sundown on Thursday, he had enjoyed the the Lord's Supper, as we call it now, but the Passover meal with his disciples. It was during that Passover meal that he had announced that there was a betrayer in their midst. And then they left that Passover meal, and they went to the garden. And there in the garden, Jesus prayed alone. He had invited three of his closest disciples to pray with him, but they continually and repeatedly fell asleep, leaving him all by himself in this most intimate of moments. And then the betrayer arrived, Judas coming with the soldiers and no doubt the temple police, and they arrest Jesus, and they immediately take him to the Jewish Sanhedrin, that is the council where during the night they have a trial, an illegal trial to be sure, but a trial nevertheless, and there they have convicted him, though there is of course no evidence against him that he is guilty, certainly not guilty of a crime worthy of death, and yet the Sanhedrin has convicted him of death. The only problem is they do not have the authority to put anyone to death. Only Rome has the power of the sword. And so now, on that early Friday morning, they are ready to take Jesus to Pilate, the Roman official who is in charge of this area, in hopes of securing the death penalty. Whether verse 1 speaks of a second gathering of the Sanhedrin or the conclusion of the night's activities before has been debated by scholars. But regardless, they all agree that it is now time for Jesus to be delivered over to Pilate, Pontius Pilate is the Roman prefect, or what we might call the governor of Judea. He did not live in Jerusalem, but he was required to be there during feasts, especially a feast like the Passover, because as you well know, many, many people would come to Jerusalem, and with them, they would come with prayers, prayers for the overthrow of Rome. Some of them would come with plans, plans for the overthrow of Rome. And so Pilate would need to be there to make sure there were no uprisings during this particular celebration. Pilate is the fifth Roman governor to rule over this region. And of the 14 who did so, he reigned the longest. His years were from A.D. 26 until 36, meaning he reigned for 10 years. What we do know about him, both from the Bible and secular records, is that he was no friend of the Jews. Mark paints him in as sympathetic a light as possible. But we must remember Mark is writing to Christians in Rome, Christians who some years after these events occurred are on the verge of experiencing their own persecution under Nero. And so there is no need to paint Rome in a bad light and cause the believers even more trouble. But that is not to say or insinuate that Mark is embellishing his portrait of Pilate He is still guilty of condemning a man that he absolutely knew beyond any shadow of a doubt was not guilty of anything worthy of death. But I'm getting ahead of myself. Secular records, both from Josephus, the Jewish historian, and Philo, tell us that uh, Pilate was a much harsher man than what we read here. Though he was not as violent as Caligula or Nero We know he had a history of being insensitive to the Jews, especially when it comes to their religious preferences. And when he was insensitive to their uh, their preferences, they would often protest against him. And when they protested, he would become stubborn. That was his history, and we have to acknowledge that the Jews were often stubborn too. All of that to say, Pilate is no stranger to Jewish protests. In fact, Luke records for us occasion an occasion when Pilate had some Gentiles killed. Nothing wrong with that, according to the Jews, but the problem was he had the Gentiles killed in the temple, and Luke 13 tells us that he mixed the blood of the Gentiles with the sacrifices, all of which was blasphemy in the eyes of the Jews. This was the kind of man that Pilate was, the kind of man that these Jewish leaders now appeal to. No friend of the Jews, but now they need a favor. They need to convince him that Jesus has done something worthy of death. And so as this trial begins, this is the second trial, the the Roman trial, we see that the king is silent. Again, as I mentioned, it is early morning, the best time to appeal to a Roman court. They began their day early because by mid-morning, They were already involved in their leisure activities. Sounds like a pretty good schedule, doesn't it? Start early in the morning, and by 10 or 11 or so, you're doing whatever it is you want to do for recreation. So Pilate gets to the heart of the matter. Evidently, they had told him what the charges were, either in writing or verbally. And so he gets right to the issue, and he asks Jesus, "'Are you the king of the Jews?' Now remember last week we looked at the charge of blasphemy. That's what he had been convicted of in the Jewish court. That's what the Sanhedrin had held him to. But a charge of blasphemy means nothing to a Roman official, and so other charges must be brought. And in this case, the charge is he is claiming to be a king. Certainly this would draw interest from the Roman officials because they had no king but Caesar. Caesar. They wanted no rivals to Caesar, and so this is now a political charge, whereas last week we looked at a religious charge. Luke expands on this in his version by saying, we found this man misleading our nation and forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar and saying that he himself is a Christ, the king. And So these are serious charges indeed. They claim that Jesus is claiming that he is a king, that is, he is a rival to Caesar and he is telling people not to pay their taxes and any government is certainly not going to stand for that. And so they now have the attention of the Roman governor. But also remember that even if these charges were accurate, which of course we know they are not, the Jews would not normally bring a prisoner to a Roman court. I mean, they were not fond of Rome either. So even if all of this was true, they would have agreed with it. And so Pilate is well aware of that and knows that there is more going on than meets the eye. The charge of being a king is just another way of saying Christ. They have simply changed it to political terminology rather than religious ones. And while my point in this section is that the king is silent, Jesus does answer the initial question, though he does so in a very vague way. Are you the king of the Jews? And his answer is, that's what you say. Had he directly affirmed this, that is, ha- had he said yes, then the trial is over with. He is guilty, and he would have been condemned to death. Had he denied it, that is, said no, then he would have been a false witness, for indeed he is a king, not just of the Jews. He is a king of all who place their faith and trust in him. And so the vague way in answering this is in all likelihood a way of saying, yes, I am a king, but not like you think. Remember, we've heard before Jesus say, my kingdom is not of this world. I am a king. I do have a kingdom. But it is not like you think. It is not a geographical boundary. It is not a certain region of the world that is held together by military power. His kingdom is a religious kingdom in the hearts of those who follow him. Like Caiaphas before him, Pilate is now frustrated by Jesus' silence. He, too, does not understand that this is also a fulfillment of Scripture, and it is not a silence of defeat. Jesus is not standing humbly before this man, unable to say anything, because he knows he's guilty. This is the silence of submission, not to Pilate, but silence of submission to the will of God, even as we saw him wrestling in the garden. All of this had to take place. These things must occur for Jesus to be our sin bearer. So Pilate presses him for an answer, especially given the number of charges against him. Don't you hear how many things they are accusing him of? Shouldn't you defend yourself? And it is clear that Pilate wants to and expects Jesus to respond, given the level of the charges against him, and it's clear that he does not believe that these accusations are valid. But Jesus remains silent, so much so that we are told that Pilate is amazed. Now that's a word we've seen throughout our study of Mark's gospel, but primarily we've seen it with the crowds. Over and over again we've heard Mark tell us that the crowds were amazed because they heard Jesus' teaching and he taught as one who had authority or because of the miracles that he performed, or the healings that he did, or the exorcisms, the casting out of demons. Over and over again, the crowd was amazed. But here, it is Pilate who is amazed at the silence of Jesus, recognizing early on that there is something different about this trial. There is something different about these accusations. Most importantly, there is something different about this man. And so while the king is silent, the trial must go on. And so secondly, we see the king is sentenced. Pilate thinks he has a way out of the mess that he finds himself in. He knows Jesus to be an innocent man. That is repeatedly stated. But he also has a crowd outside in the courtyard. And as I said earlier, he is no stranger to Jewish protests. I remind you that this is not a jury trial as we have it in our day. These are not 12 of your peers sitting on the side trying to decide whether you are guilty or not. This is one man who has absolute power. From a human standpoint, Pilate can do anything he wants to do. He can release Jesus or he can condemn Jesus or do anything in between. Humanly speaking, he has absolute power, but of course we know that God is in control. But there are political issues here that we don't often think about. To us, it is rather cut and dry. It's black and white. Pilate is the one in power. He is the one who is charged with executing justice, and he knows without any doubt that Jesus is innocent of these charges. And so he must release him. He's being railroaded for religious reasons. And all of this is true, but if he merely releases Jesus, there will be an angry crowd, and their leaders will no doubt stir them up further. And enough of these protests, and Rome just might decide that Pilate can't handle being governor of Judea and replace him with someone else. Many people think that leaders, whatever realm they're in, political, business, or even the church, can make any decision they want to make. They're in a position to make the decisions, and therefore they can do whatever they want to do. But leaders in all of these categories know that there are always consequences to these decisions. A CEO has to answer to his board and stockholders. Political people have to answer to the voters. Pastors in churches have to answer to the volunteers and the people. Consequences that often result from the population not having accurate or even complete knowledge, they rise up against the leaders because they don't like the decisions that they make. And certainly in our day of social media, this is magnified a thousand times or more over. Therefore, there is often pressure to make a decision that even the leader doesn't agree with, make a decision that even the leader doesn't want. But his back or her back is against the wall. That's the situation we find Pilate in. I'm not trying to excuse him. We will see that he is still responsible for the decision that he makes. I'm simply trying to help us understand his dilemma. On top of that, Matthew's version tells us that Pilate's wife had a dream, and in the dream, God told her to have nothing to do with this, what she calls a righteous man. So during the midst of this trial, Pilate's wife comes to him and says, don't have anything to do with this righteous man. He's getting pressure, not just from the crowd and not just from the religious leaders, he's getting pressure from his wife. Now, you can insert your own jokes there. I thought about it, but I'll let you insert comments or jokes there, and we'll move along. Pilate thinks he's found a solution, one in which he will be able to free this innocent man, appease the angry crowd down below, get himself out of a jam, and stick it to the Sanhedrin in the process. He is no friend of theirs either. It was his custom at Passover "...to release a prisoner of their choosing. As a gesture of goodwill, he would give them a choice, and they come and ask him to continue this tradition. Surely, he thinks, they will ask for the release of Jesus, since again he knows that he has done nothing worthy of death. This is simply a religious matter of envy. One group of religious leaders, that is the Sanhedrin, are envious or jealous of Jesus' success." They are envious of his piety, that is, the the way he lived his life. They were envious of his popularity. They were envious of his ability to perform miracles. And Pilate certainly knew that they had not turned him over out of loyalty to Rome. They had their own agenda, and he knew that. And so now we are introduced to a man by the name of Barabbas. Barabbas. A name that means son, that's what the word part bar means, son of the father. You see the word Abba in there, son of the father. And we don't know anything more about him other than what is listed in the Gospels. Nor do we have any of the details of the insurrection in which he was involved, though we do know that these were rather common during this time. What we do know is that he's called a rebel, an insurrectionist, That is, someone who was intent on overthrowing Rome, and in the process, he had murdered someone. So what we don't often think about, and apparently what Pilate overlooked, is that such a man might very well have been popular with the people, and dare I say, even a hero among them. We often think to ourselves, why would they ask for Barabbas? We know he was a murderer, but that is because he was against the Romans, as they were as well. There is a play on words in the text. Matthew adds Barabbas' surname was Jesus. And so the question really is, which Jesus do you want me to release to you? Jesus, who is son of the Father, or Jesus, who is the would-be Messiah? And the answer is clear. Having been stirred up or incited, they know what they want to ask for. They want Barabbas freed. And this obviously took Pilate by surprise. So he asked the crowd a second question. What should I do with Jesus? If you want Barabbas to go free, what about Jesus? And they shout, crucify him. But what evil has he done? Another indication that Pilate knows he is not guilty of anything. What evil has he done? And they don't even answer that question. They simply more urgently and more incessantly and perhaps louder cry out once again, crucify him. I've always wondered how the crowd can go from shouts of Hosanna on Sunday, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, to crucify him on Friday morning. And I don't have the answer for that question. Perhaps there is a different makeup to the crowd. That is, maybe the Sanhedrin has intentionally gathered people at this particular moment who they know they can influence to cry out whatever it is they tell them to cry out. So maybe it's a different makeup of the crowd, or maybe their opinion has changed that drastically since Sunday. On Sunday, when he rode into town, they had high hopes that he was indeed the Messiah. But remember, their idea of the Messiah is a political ruler, someone who is going to overthrow the Romans, and he certainly does not look like that now. He's been arrested. He is in chains. He is on trial. He is near death. This cannot be the Messiah, so perhaps their minds have been changed. We do know that crowds are notoriously fickle, easily swayed in one direction or another. There are numerous examples, even in our own day, of crowds who collectively have done something that individuals in that crowd would have never done on their own, and things that they later regret taking part of in the, in the moment. So maybe it's an issue here of mob mentality swayed by the religious leaders. Whatever the reason, the situation has clearly spiraled out of control. Not God's control, but Pilate's. He is on the verge of having yet another protest, which will be difficult to explain to his bosses. Again, we have to turn to Matthew to find Pilate symbolically washing his hands. He takes a basin of water and he washes his hands in front of the crowd And he says, I'm innocent of this man's blood. And the crowd shouts out, we'll take responsibility for it and our children. Do you hear that? That is how bad they wanted Jesus dead, that they said, we will take responsibility for his death and even apply it to our children. But Pilate's symbolism does not work. He is just as guilty as Caiaphas. He had the authority to decide and he didn't. He let the crowd control his decision rather than his conscience. He chose his political career over justice, desiring to satisfy the crowd rather than to make the hard choice. And so he releases Barabbas, a known killer and opponent of Rome, and sentenced Jesus, an innocent man, to death. And the way the Romans did that, as you well know, is death by crucifixion, the cruelest form of the death penalty. But that was often preceded by scourging or flogging. And here is an example where Mark does not give us the gory details. It is easy to read over this and go straight to Calvary, the part of the story that we are more familiar with. It is easy to read verse 15 and just go on. So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas and having scourged Jesus. Scourging or flogging was a punishment that often preceded crucifixion. Or sometimes it was a punishment on its own. It involves stripping the person naked, tying him to a post, and then whipping him. And that leather whip would contain on the end of it bits of metal or bone. And you can well imagine how this metal and bone would tear into the skin, so much so that bones and organs would be exposed. Prisoners died from this form of punishment alone, and there was no regulation on it. This is not a Jewish punishment. The Jews had a had a form of whipping, but they regulated it at forty lashes, and just so they did not disobey the law, they confined it to thirty-nine, but the Romans had no such rule. They could whip or scourge as much as they wanted. It was a punishment given in part to shorten the time of crucifixion, usually given en route to the cross, but that is not the case with Jesus. He was flogged beforehand. So the king is silent before his accusers, and as a result, he is sentenced to death, but the ordeal is far from over. The gospel writers, including Mark, seem to put much more emphasis on the mocking of Jesus than they do the physical punishment. And so lastly, we notice that the king is shamed. Jesus is handed over to soldiers and led away. There is a debate as to where they were led to. Some say it is the Fortress Antonio, and if you go to Israel, that is likely where they will tell you that it took place. But it's much more likely that this is Herod's courtyard. The actual place, of course, doesn't determine our interpretation of the events. The word here for battalion is actually the word cohort, and it refers to one-tenth of a legion, so that's about 600 soldiers. These men were likely an elite group of soldiers who were the personal guards of the prefect of Pilate. And they decide to have a little sport with Jesus, to be entertained by this pretender to the crown. And so mockingly, they make Jesus look like a king. They put a purple robe or cloak on him. Purple was the most expensive dye at that time, and so it it was the color of royalty. The crown that you are so familiar with that was placed on Jesus' head, the crown of thorns, was not so much meant as another form of punishment, though certainly it would not have felt good. It was more mock royal attire to go along with the robe. Then they hailed him as king, as they would do for Caesar, only clearly this was done in jest, even kneeling before him in a shameful posture of mock respect. They beat him with rods or reeds, what we might call today bamboo of some sort, And they spit on him, perhaps a substitute for the common form of greeting, that is greeting with a kiss. Instead of kissing, they spit. Isaiah 50 and verse 6 says, I gave my back to those who strike me and my cheek to those who pull out the beard. I hid my face from disgrace and spitting. I did not know until Scott told me this morning that your Sunday school lesson at least if your class is in the gospel project, was on Isaiah 52 and 53. Isaiah prophesying of the very things that we are seeing fulfilled in Mark chapter 15. So after all of that, Jesus is turned over to the execution squad to carry out the sentence. The execution squad would have been four soldiers led by a centurion, a centurion being a man who had a hundred soldiers under his care. And these five men would be assigned the gruesome details that we will look at next week of carrying out the sentence that lay ahead. And so we've seen that the king is silent, the king is sentenced, and the king is shamed. All part of being condemned for us. And so we've seen both the Jewish and now Roman trials. Both religious charges, that is blasphemy, And political charges, that is, he makes himself out to be a king. Luke records an additional trial before Antipas that Mark leaves out, while John records a dialogue between Jesus and Pilate, a a theological discussion on the nature of his kingdom. So clearly there is more that has taken place than what Mark, or for that matter, any gospel writer records. But it is not the details of each and every event that we are concerned about. Instead, we are interested in the why and the results. Why did Jesus suffer in this way? And what does this suffering mean? And in large measure, we will have to wait until we examine the crucifixion next week. But for today, we must ask ourselves, how do we apply this particular portion of Scripture to our lives? How do the trials and the mocking of Jesus affect us today? How do they affect us moving forward? I mean, I realize we could learn these events. We could even get emotional about these events. But my question is, how do they apply to our lives today? And in answer to that question, first of all, I would say what I said last week. And that is Mark is writing to Roman Christians who are on the verge of facing historical proportions of persecutions at the hand of Nero. And no doubt hearing the story of Jesus would encourage them. That Jesus knows what they are going through because he has been in their shoes. And not only has he suffered severely, but he has been victorious through it. So it's not just that Jesus can identify with them, but it is that he can strengthen them that they might have victory as well. Again, I realize that the vast majority of us will never be called upon to testify in trial before a secular judge for our faith with our lives hanging in the balance. But all of us do suffer, and sometimes we do face much minor forms of persecution for our faith. So we too must be encouraged that Jesus knows what we are going through and can and will strengthen us for victory So don't lose heart in the heat of the battle. Don't lose heart when you suffer or are persecuted because we know that Jesus did so and did it for us. Secondly, Jesus is our king in spite of the ridicule and mocking that we saw in this text. And as his subjects, that is as his children, he rules and reigns over our lives. Which means we are to be obedient to him. And when we choose to be rebellious, we are acting just like these soldiers who are mocking the kingship of Jesus. I am not saying that we would literally mock him in this way, but I am saying that when when we, when we rebel against his rule and reign, we are in essence mocking him as our king, desiring to be our own king in his place. So don't mock the king. Obey him and follow him. Finally, in our never-ending pursuit of placing ourselves into the story that we read, I want to ask you in closing, where do you see yourself in this story? I mean, we always try to do that. When we watch a movie or a television show, we instinctively identify with one character or another in the drama. And so I'm asking you, in these events, whom do you identify with? And I've already acknowledged that there is a sense in which we can identify with Jesus. That is, he suffered and was persecuted, and we might face that same thing. But ultimately, we can't identify with Jesus. We don't know what it's like to be sinless. We don't know what it's like to bear the sin of everyone else upon his shoulder. So in that sense, we can't identify with him. So I imagine some of you would say, yes, I identify with the crowd, I hate to admit it, but I think I would probably have been with the crowd. Maybe it would have been a sense in which I got involved and later regret it, but I would have identified with the crowd. And yet some of you are saying, no, I would not. I would never have done that to Jesus. And that's what Peter said too. You remember that? Peter said, though everyone else deny you, I will not. Death over disloyalty. And yet we saw what happened to Peter. And so I certainly recognize that there's a sense in which we would identify with the crowd and say, I hate to admit it, but I'm sure I would have been there calling out for Jesus to be crucified. But you know who we really ought to identify with in this story? It's Barabbas. We are Barabbas. You say, How's that? Barabbas was guilty. He had done what they claimed he had done. He was guilty of his crime, and he was deserving of death. Now, your crime might be different. I'm not saying you are an insurrectionist or a murderer. Your resume might have different elements on it, but you and I are guilty nevertheless. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And the wages of sin is what? Death. All of us are like Barabbas, but what happened to Barabbas? Barabbas was set free. As a guilty man deserving of death, Barabbas was set free because an innocent man died in his place. Now, I am not claiming that Barabbas was saved. Don't don't misunderstand me. I am not saying that Barabbas understood this. Not saying that at all. We know nothing else about him. I'm simply saying that he is a type of who we are because he was a guilty man who deserved to die, and yet he was set free because an innocent man died in his place. And that, my friends, is the gospel. That is the gospel story, that we who deserve to die are set free from our sin because an innocent man named Jesus died in our place. He who knew no sin became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And that is what makes salvation so wonderful. Let me pray.